AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for January 19th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we are joined by John Markley online. Welcome, John. Thank you. John, it's been a little while since you've joined us, so uh, give us a, just a sentence or two about uh, what type of work you do. I've uh, been with the company uh, here for quite a long, long time and currently working in mobile endpoint security. All right, very good. Glad to have you with us, and uh, I understand we're going to be doing a little bit of a quiz later on. I'm looking forward to that a little brain-racking activity. We have John uh, Hogeboom here today. Welcome, John. Thank you. Welcome Glad back. to be back. And uh, Matt Kaiser, welcome. Thanks, Brian. All right, so let's get on with the program here. I'm Brian Rexrow, by the way, and uh, Matt, we're going to go to you first. And uh, I guess, you know, you always want to be careful how much information you're sharing. Well, Take it. <laughs> it's, it's, information is one thing, but I think fully functioning malware code is a completely different story. Uh, so this one comes to us from Trend Micro. Uh, a researcher named Oktu Sen, I believe he's Turkish, released source code last year for a fully functional ransomware he's calling Hidden Tier. Which is, you know, interesting. Someone goes ahead and builds this and then decides for educational purposes to share it with the community and say, this is how someone would build something like this, potentially for a malware analyst to say, how would you prevent something like this from working on a system or how would you detect these sorts of behaviors? Mm -hmm. So, you know, for those who don't have access to these kinds of samples, it could be valuable. Unfortunately, about a month later, someone they, someone found out that they were actually using this malware, not the original guy, someone had downloaded the code, compiled it with a few small changes, and started using it in an actual ransomware campaign against people. So it really becomes an interesting question of what's more valuable? Is it more valuable to keep this kind of information sort of held close to the chest and share it with people who you trust, not to go out and use it for crime? Or is it more valuable to reach people who need the education don't necessarily have access to those sorts of closed communities. Like, for example, if you're in high school or college, you want to learn about malware analysis, you're not going to have the hookups. You won't know somebody in the industry, most likely, who'll be able to get you into, say, a closed sharing community or access to some repository online. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually a little bit on the fence on this one. I'd like to hear what you guys have to think about it. This reminds me of a, a, like a Chinese puzzle in reverse. <laughs> you know, it's one of these situations where you're trying to figure out what not to do, but still get the message across. So, you know, one, one approach might be to, you know, kind of do a demonstration thing, but have it be broken in a, in a particular way so that you'd have to really be kind of savvy in your approach to things in order to, like, you could have used, like, really crummy encryption or something like that. So if it did get used, at least there'd be a quick fix, you could just say, oh, well, just do this, and you'll be able to <laughs> basically back channel your way you, out of it. You, you could make it so, call home or something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So, you know, there are little tricks that could be done along these lines, but I think ultimately, you know, this, this actually reminds me of the, uh, the first episode of iRobot, where there's this section where they're, you know, they're analyzing this thing. He said, well, this piece of the code's really elegant, and this one's really all really chopped together, and he said, yeah, that part was something that my friend did. You know, it, was like it, was, it was part of a demonstration, but it's those kinds of things. You know, ultimately, we have to consider what the ramification, potential ramifications are of the, uh, the work that we're doing. And you know, I think in most cases, 
where we've seen research papers that describe how things might be done are perhaps as, at least as powerful. And I think perhaps the purpose behind it, you know, if you're really trying to educate folks on what things that need to be done, it, it kind of brings me again back to uh, some of the things that uh, Ed Amoroso was kind of sharing with us about, you know, the higher order is protecting against it. Anybody can find a way to, to, you know, to, you know, create an attack, figure out how to protect against that attack. So I think there are a lot, enough existence cases out there that you don't really need to create new ones to be able to, um, to be able to demonstrate how you would go about protecting it against that type of thing. So final answer is <laughs> use the existing cases. Why do you need to create new ones? Yeah, I would agree also because if you go to GitHub, you can get source code for most of these malware families, like the full source code, because there are other uh, researchers out there who are sharing those samples up there with the actual real source code. Um, so I think the only mistake here is that this guy kind of created something new of his own and put it out there mm -hmm. um, for educational purposes versus things that are more mainstream. Like if you look at any of the point of sale malware, you'll find all of the source code for all the various versions. Or even versions. Light Hydra, the, uh, the Right, Light Hydra. You know, there's tons of them out there, so I think that... But the, I guess the question doesn't, it's not really confined to, did this individual do something wrong? Is it, did any of those guys who put the stuff up on GitHub for everyone to share, did they also commit the same sin? I don't know. Like you, know? you said, I think it's gonna be, nature finds a way, you know what I mean? There's gonna be malware no matter what, and it's just, a matter of how much. And if people are gonna recompile and build slight variations of samples that are already out there, they'll probably get detected a lot more quickly anyway. So, I don't know. That's my opinion. It's a tough question. I mean, th this, is, this is clearly in the, there's not a clear answer. I mean, even, you know, even among us. Uh, John, uh, maybe you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if you look at a lot of the, I think you mentioned the earlier is the, uh, you know, some of these source codes that get published, they actually put a, like an error in the code or they don't give you the full code. I think that's a little better than publishing the full, you know, disclosure, but a white paper probably would have just done just as well as releasing source code. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think we're sort of in general agreement. There are some fundamental issues around this. There may be some better ways to go about it. If the true purpose is education, I think the existence, uh, you know, the, the ones that already exist and have these these characteristics, and if there are certain uh, aspects of it that are, uh, you know, that that you want to, you know, sort of point out, that can be done in a verbal sense without providing the overall solution. I mean, it uh, doesn't take take it all the way down the path, at least. And uh, really, the higher order here is to protect against them, as opposed to demonstrate how it can be done. I think it's funny because the the author did include a note saying this is for educational purposes, not to be used. But I remember, you know, going on bulletin boards and, and other places and forums and reading, you know, hacker docs, and they all say at the very beginning, this is just for educational purposes. You should never use this to attack, blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of boilerplate because, and after a while you start off saying, there's no way you can really use what you're writing here to do anything but commit a crime. Or of course, f for research as well. But I don't know. It seems at some point some people will just use it because they know if they don't use it, they're going to get in trouble. But also for people like us who are, you know, responsible for defending, knowing how this stuff works is helpful. So it's, yeah. it is a complicated question, you know. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know that there's a right answer. So necessarily not, you know, not putting it out there is not necessarily the right answer. But because um, the people who are going to use it 
to help protect themselves are the ones that you want to be able to read this kind of thing mm -hmm. and understand it. So anyway. So John, let's go to you here. And uh, this is a case where it's not a case of malware, it's a case of a bug. And yeah. you know, I, I, when they first came out with this, I don't think it really has an official name. I, I have the tendency to want to call it bleeding heart because it's a little backwards from what we had experienced before. So. And I kind of want to, uh, I have a slide here that talks about this recent bug. So this bug is in OpenSSH, uh, which is a little bit different, related to OpenSSL, but different. They share some common libraries, but it's really in the SSH client piece. Uh, and SSH is um, like a command line tool that you would use to connect from one machine to another uh, at a console level, as opposed to a like web browsers talking to each other, which would be the open SSL uh, aspect. Um, in any event, so in Heartbleed, which was an open SSL bug from 2014, what actually was happening in that case is I'm a web browser. I could go talk to a vulnerable web server and send some codes to it that would do some arbitrary information disclosure. I could see some of the data that was actually in the server. I could um, just keep poking it over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, it's a completely different thing. So that was a really bad bug, the Heartbleed one. That was bad. I mean, because one of the things that could occur is- It was so easy. Well, the, the key could leak out as a part of that. Right. And uh, that was a big deal, particularly if it was the server-side private key, right. in which case that would potentially, basically, yeah, just ma makes the, uh, all the encryption uh, effectively and effective. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but this recent bug is in OpenSSH and it's only in the client piece. So that is, you know, you're running command line, you're going to SSH from one server to it, uh, from one workstation to a server. Uh, it's in that client piece of code. And what is actually happening here is in your client, you go to connect to the server. And if the server is malicious, he can send information like some exploit code back to your client. And it's actually in the use roaming functions as part of the client. And it's only, it's only in the client. The server does not have a vulnerability in it. And via that, it can tell, it can exploit the client to send its private key to the server. But that's just a session private key. Well, correct? it would be, it no, it's a private key. private key. Yeah, so if you're okay. using public private key kind of right. thing, okay. so, so um, for your authentication between, with, so in SSH, you can have password authentication or you can have a public private key mm -hmm. pair. So we'll you know, send that to you right. or send it to the server. So the thing about this is, uh, well, actually a couple of notes that I had here. So it, it's a bug in the use roaming option in SSH. It's been patched, so you should just apply the patch. Mm -hmm. If you can't apply the patch for some reason, um, you can disable that option in your client in the SSH config. The SSH client has to visit a malicious server and it has to authenticate successfully before the exploit can get sent from a malicious server to the client. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I can just coerce you to come visit my SSH server and unless I can somehow authenticate you just on the fly, mm -hmm. but I don't really know if that's going to be possible. And then even still with a man in the middle, like if you've ever used SSH, if you're going to try to pretend to be an SSH server that uh, you know somebody else is trying to get to, mm -hmm. you're not going to have the same uh, key pair on your side, uh, your host key pair. So it's going to you know, bring up this big warning message to the client and the client's going to know, hey, this isn't the same server I logged into yesterday. Something's wrong here. So it's a little weird. They did mention one plausible scenario. So an advanced nation state attacker who can compromise an SSH server that maybe has something interesting on there. Let's say they compromise it however means they go to do that. And they're on there. Then they make that server malicious and they start collecting private keys 
for all the users who log in so that if someone figures out that this machine has been compromised and they fix it and clean it up, now they have all the private keys and if they don't, the users don't change their private keys, they can regain access. So it's persistence. So for persistence yeah, type of thing. Well, that's, a, that's actually a clever observation to right. keep in mind in terms right. of protecting against it. That is, so, if, you, if you find a, a compromised SSH server, you might want to consider, and, and it's potentially vulnerable to this, there's have clients that are potentially vulnerable to, you might want to uh, make sure that they reset their keys as a right. part of the activity. Right. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is there's a lot of people who use um, a very popular uh, SSH client for Windows called Putty that is not impacted by this. It's really just the OpenSSH code branch. I guess it's maybe from FreeBSD, I'm not quite sure who, or OpenSSH.org. Okay. So, uh, uh, so you're not impacted if you're running Putty. All right, so very good. Not anywhere near as significant as Heartbleed. No, not the, very uh, difficult to exploit in a meaningful way or repeatable way that mm -hmm. a client would not notice. Right. Um, so. Well, and, and in terms of uh, patching systems, generally you're, I mean, uh, I guess it depends on the, you know, the operations environment, but, you know, you, you should keep systems up to date patched, but in terms of criticality, uh, if it's a server that you are logging into as opposed to logging, you know, using as a, a, a launch point or using the client side or going to uh, another system, if you're not using the client on that server, then it may not be any significant issue. Right. I assume this would apply to SCP as well, right? Yes. It's basically a copy yeah, or overlay SFTP, on the SSH. Or right, any of those SSH, whatever, other, they're basically, they use the same protocol, underlying it's a lot, protocol. It's a, they they the share a library. It's, right. Yeah, it's, a, it's a library issue, so whatever is, is shared with that library. Right. So, uh, all right, well, good to know. It's good to keep that in mind. And uh, like you said, most folks, I, I presume most folks that are using a client from Windows thing or a platform are using Putty, so not susceptible. But if you have a Linux platform or something you're using to uh, log into other systems, you want to right. take a look you at the You should update anyway just least, to make sure uh, you're covered. The, use roaming feature. Right. All right, good deal. So uh, let's go on to this next one here. And uh, John, I guess, uh, John Markley in this case, um, you know, we talk a lot about fake sites, but uh, I guess one of the things that I have to admit is not fore and foremost in my mind is fake news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, 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 what, so what we have here is, is Snopes did a, a pretty good review. It's a good article if you get a chance to read it about the prevalence on, especially on social media, of fake news. And, they're, and they, they go through a couple sites and a couple uh, normal sources for that type of information. And they mentioned that, you know, a lot of people can't distinguish uh, between the fake and the real. The challenge, of course, from a security perspective is, is some of these sites actually lead to malicious content or have other, uh, other you know, other challenges. So, mm -hmm. I, so I recommend this site. I mean, you know, it, it does talk a lot about clickbaiting and that type of thing. But it also really gives a good overview of why these sites with their fake news and, and why they exist and, and, and how they operate. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a good read. And, uh, you know, not a whole lot of security content per se, but it is, uh, uh, I think it is very relevant to, uh, to what we see in the, in the environment right now.
Yeah, I agree with you. You know, uh, user awareness, that is, uh, us as people, that what I've, <laughs> I've recently read is wetware, uh, you know, we need to be cognizant of the things that, um, you know, truth versus fiction and the, uh, the things that we're looking at. Uh, it's, it's the, you know, primary filter we have for identifying phishing attacks, and it's the uh, same kind of thing we need to apply to news. There are all kinds of subtle lines between what is real, you know, nonfiction and fiction. And uh, so I think it's good to bring that up. Well, and, and you know, you, you get to thinking about, you know, like the, the story kind of talks about how do you kind of tell it's fake. I, I always use the rule of thumb that if, if the article says, please share or like this, that, that leads me to think that it's probably not quite kosher. <laughs> right. Right. Especially if you have to like or, or comment or favorite in order to view the article itself, mm -hmm. almost 100% of the time that's fake. Mm -hmm. It's just there to build you know, more likes and get more attention for the same article. That's true, yeah. There've been awful, it seems like a rash of things where they, they use these subtle little lines like, you know, mourning this, you know, uh, celebrity or something along those lines, although it is actually true that Glenn Fry has passed away, but the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger has not yet, so. Thank <laughs> God, <laughs> knocking on wood. All right, thank you, John. Uh, Matt, we're gonna go back over to you here and, um, so Lost Pass and Last Pass. Let's get, you know, I, 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 we had to check and make sure that wasn't a spelling error. I had to check it, but tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So we know about the site LastPass, and it's a password manager website. You can store all your stuff up in the cloud. With a single password, you get access to the rest of your passwords. In general, password managers, I endorse them. I think they're a great idea because mm -hmm. I personally can't remember all of mine. And having a, a single place to store them and, and access them that's still secure is a good idea. I, I don't think there are very many humans except perhaps the Rain Man that could remember all their passwords so long as they're doing good practices and using unique right, passwords right. at all of the different sites that, and tools knew, that they use. I knew one guy who was memorizing the digits of pi. He could probably do it, but I don't yeah. think anybody else could. Um, but so there's uh, a ShmooCon this year. That would be um, a good password, by the way. Which one? Pi. Pi? <laughs> Take forever to type in. Yeah, literally forever <laughs> to type in, yes. <laughs> so at, at ShmooCon, uh, Sean Cassidy uh, produced a tool he calls Lost Pass, which is, you know, as in you're losing all your passwords. And this is exactly what it is. It's a phishing attack on LastPass. Mm. So the interesting thing about LastPass is that it, it resides in your browser as well as as a website. And if for, something, for some reason you may lose connection to the site or you have to log back in, it'll drop down a little thing on whatever site you're visiting that says, by the way, you're not logged into LastPass right now. You need to change that. So Sean Cassidy's attack takes advantage of the fact that it shows up in the browser, and if you bring someone to a phishing site that you've prepared, it'll drop one of these things down and say, by the way, you got to log into LastPass. Uh, you click on that, it'll bring you to a fake LastPass login page. Mm. Um, and typically, he, he sort of tailored it for using Chrome. So in Chrome, there's a, a certain thing where it's called Chrome extensions, where it'll load within the browser a certain type of content locally. Um, but he, he registered chrome-extensions.pw, which is close enough to fool most people. As a part of that, he built this, this phishing page. When you put your username and password into it, it'll actually use the LastPass API to go and check your password for you. Mm. And if you're using two-factor authentication, and this is the part that's kind of impressive, it will go ahead and bring back the, the, um, the challenge portion of that and say, okay, you gotta, you gotta type in your two-factor authentication, um, Google Authenticator, I think, in this case, and then it'll ship that back to the site as well. And once it's collected all the necessary details to log you in, it steals all your passwords. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the vulnerability that this, you know, it's, it's sort of 
a weakness in the, the LastPass site itself, it's been fixed. And LastPass has actually gone the extra mile. And if you're using LastPass from a computer you've never used it from before, um, in which case, maybe the attacker's computer will be making that same request. They're someone you've never locked in before as. It'll ask you for an extra factor of authentication as well. So. That's a good deal. You know, and I think that's one of the, uh, really, my impression at least, a valuable mechanism that is to have some um, some association with the end device that the user is coming from. That is, that I think that's generally done with a cookie on websites. and Typically you have a session for that that right. you respond back with every time you talk to the site, yeah. All right. So, uh, I think it's 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 valuable to make a little distinction. We were talking about the ransomware case or the sample code. This is a case where somebody came out and described an exploit, but I think you mentioned a couple of key factors here that the problem has been fixed. I don't know if they, there was a public disclosure before the problem was fi was fixed, but that's really the right process to go through is to, you know, if you find a problem, contact the organization that has the problem. Sometimes they have a bug bounty program and take advantage of that. You might actually get paid for the finding, work with them to fix it, and then, you know, seek the glory of the, uh, of the finding. So in some cases you don't get the opportunity to do that if you participate in a bug bounty program, but that's a choice you get to make, money or fame. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't always to, come together. I have to admit, I applaud LastPass for how quickly they got on top of this yeah. and addressed it. Uh, one thing that it does kind of ring in my head and it's kind of been bugging me about a lot of websites I use that I wish more websites uh, did is whenever you log on to that website, there should be a way when I go to my account settings to see all the recent logons and what device did that. So if it was my like a phone or an app that connected to it and what that IP address was that connected and just have an audit history of like the last, I don't even, it could be just the last seven days, just so I know that nobody's gotten my pass. I could log in and look and see that there haven't been any weird places mm -hmm. that have logged into my account on, mm -hmm. you know, whatever website that I'm, you know, checking on, especially with things like security camera things mm -hmm. um, or, you know, even like this, like LastPass, where you've got some really secure content in there that I want to know if anybody else logs into this thing yeah. besides my IP address or IP addresses that I know I normally would come from. Yeah, that's a really good suggestion because, you know, I, I found that more sites are providing notifications, but it's generally an email notification that goes right into the email account that we always talked about as sort of that key critical piece. If your email account's been compromised, it's been used to reset your password, the notification goes into that email account and the attacker just deletes it, how do you, <laughs> you have no, uh, you know, no control, but if you actually have the opportunity to go to a website and view the logs and say, you know what, yeah, that was me, or this one wasn't me. It's right. uh, it, it would be certainly a valuable thing for the user. I only know of a few sites that actually yeah. do that. I won't name who the ones are, the good ones that do do that, um, but there are a few that do. So oh, I, I think you can. I well, think Yahoo you can is one. Where, okay, there you go. So, <laughs> no I mean, shame. they're they're pretty good There's about no shame tracking doing a good that job, and giving so you the ability to look at it. So. Right. Very good. So uh, good story here. I think there are some good um, aspects of this. It's good to see that they've uh, they've fixed this. You know, one of the things that um, uh, well, I guess we're going to go into uh, sort of another you know authentication story here, John. So but we'll, we'll do a little trade-off on there's storing and then there's a two-factor authentication that the thing that we're gonna talk about here. So right. go ahead, John. Yeah, so this is another story. So we've talked about 
malware on phones mm -hmm. and uh, malware that has recently been you know, uh, reported on phones that are specifically uh, harvesting passwords, like one-time passwords, uh, for various banking and other financial sites. Mm -hmm. So you know, the, the general process is maybe I'm logging into my banking website, I put my login ID and password in, and it says we have this second factor of authentication, we're gonna send you a pin code that you have to type in, so we're gonna send it to your phone, and a lot of times they'll offer it as either an SMS text message, mm -hmm. uh, where you get the pin code in a message, or they'll even, I know a lot of them will do email, and then some others will actually do a voice call. So they have like kind of a robot calls your phone and you pick it up and you listen and it'll tell you the code that, um, that you need to type in on mm -hmm. the website. Uh, so this new piece of malware, well, I, guess, I don't know if it's new or not, but um, a new variation or technique that this uh, Android Benkoski malware is doing is it actually has code pass in it so that if there is this type of voice callback as part of the banking thing, it can go and forward the phone number silently to the user. So like, let's say I'm the bad guy, I wanna go log into your bank account and I have this malware on your phone. I could say, okay, for the next 10 minutes, I'm gonna forward any phone calls that come to his phone to me. I'm gonna to try to log into the banking website, tell it to use the voice authentication. I get the call because it gets forwarded to me and I put the code in and I get through. Uh, so it's an interesting new technique that they're using. We know that they've been doing the one-time passwords to the SMS text messages, which is a lot easier to kind of harvest and then shuttle off to somewhere else. But this voice call interception uh, is a little bit more mm -hmm. advanced, or it's a different twist. I don't it, know if it's well, necessarily advanced. Not something most people would be expecting. Right. 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 So, so this uh, this malware app. This is I, I assume this is something where the uh, end user gets bamboozled into loading mm -hmm. onto the device. They, I remember a case. It was a classic one before where they actually sent a message to the end user in advance, and they sent them a message that said, that purported to be from the bank and said, we're gonna ask you to install this thing as an scary enhancement for your access to, uh. the, to the banking site. And so, you know, the person, oh, well, I got a warrant, you know, and the next thing they get this, uh, this message to load this, this piece of uh, this app onto their device. That was one of the first cases that I'm aware of where they were trying to intercept SMS messages. And I think they purported it to be, you know, part of the two-factor authentication mechanism. And so it, it gave the, uh, basically the user of the queue that, you know, grant access to the SMS messages, which would go in and then pilfer those. Right. It's the same kind of thing here where once you get one of those malicious apps on there, it gets permission to be able to get access to other media like voice or SMS messages, it is able to get into that path. And I think that kind of gets to the point where I like to make a distinction between back-channel authentication and, you know, this is sort of two-factor authentication, but it's a weak form of it because that back-channel is potentially accessible from other places due to things like call forwarding, being able to, and a lot of services allow you to get, you know, messaging services from SMS alternative places. You can yeah. install an app on your PC and get SMS messages, or you can uh, you know, go to a website and get it. So to think of that messaging service as it only goes to a particular device and try to make an attachment that it's something you have and something you know kind of authentication just falls apart very quickly. Do you think that two-factor auth should not just be a second message that it should go to a separate second device? Because the assumption in this case is that, you know, if the handset is compromised, 
no matter what comes into the handset, you have a chance of it being intercepted anyway. Should it go to, I don't know, maybe a backup email address or some other way, well, a second phone number? Well, that's certainly an ideal way. You want to get some diversity in it, but I, I'm a little old school on the notion of two-factor authentication. It was always originally defined as something you have something you have, physical, and something you know. And it started out as little token things with the displays, and they also had things where you get a challenge and you, you know, type in a thing and it displays a response, you type in the response. They, there's automation you can put around that, have basically a, a token chip built into computers. IBM did that years ago. It never really took off because nobody understood where it would be, why it would be valuable. And um, you know, I think in mobile devices, there are some opportunities to bind things, even to have an app that is well enclosed, that doesn't get, you know, get all these permissions from outside things. It's keyed specifically for the device. And I think where we'd like to see things going in the future is to really bind it to the SIM chip that's on devices, which is what's used for registering actually to the network. So there are a lot of opportunities here to improve it, but there really needs to be a strong binding, in my opinion, between something you have, and which means that it can't be done from another place and something you know, which is really, you know, some uh, attribute that helps to, uh, you know, control access to, the, like, if you lose the thing you have, it, it shouldn't be a free, free reign into your, whatever you have. <laughs> so. Well, we were talking before the show, yeah. the RSA app for your phone, I believe, I'm pretty sure, is tied to the hardware ID of the phone. So if you get a new phone with a new hardware ID, you've got to go re-register your. Right, you got to register it. And yeah, it's going to change it different on the system that you're trying to log into. Yeah. Um, but it still doesn't insulate you from that device getting compromised, right? You know, in theory, if, if the device itself the device is can be compromised, compromised yes. like you know this malware, it's all bets are off. You know, you're somebody could right. write something that pokes into the RSA app and and watches the numbers that are getting generated yeah. or something. That'd I don't know a, how to, I would do that, but... Well, you can take pictures of the screen theory. and send it or something like that. So right. there are little tricks that could potentially be done. I just want to sort of emphasize, first of all, the back channel thing is better than nothing. It is, right, you know, it's right. better than just a regular password. But we have to be cognizant of that there are, there are other things, other means to get access to the back channel. So it's better, but not the end game. I think to your point, most of the cases that we've talked about, and almost all of the malware cases we've talked about on, mo on mobile devices, it hasn't been a compromise of the device. It's been installation of a malicious app. Right, and right. so what you're talking about really does require compromise of the device. And, you know, jailbroken devices are more susceptible to that type of thing. And it, it can still happen. There's still, there's still computers in the end. But... Right. It's so a little be bit careful. Better. Don't sideload apps. Well, Talk about that. We, a might, bit. we might have a trivia question about that later. Um, but basically, means install from like a, the non-official uh, app store yeah. for whatever your device is, like so Google Play or um, the Apple Store. But uh, also pay close attention to what when you install apps, what permissions they're asking that they think they need. You know, so if you're installing some new calculator app and it says I need to access all of your SMS text messages. That's kind of like, why, why would they yeah, why need do to do that, that you why know? You um, so you should be questioning that when you install apps to make sure that what it's asking for really makes sense. And as long as you, you know, if you avoid those third-party app stores, uh, it should help you quite a bit from, from getting yeah. a piece of malware like that, especially on Android devices, I would think. Yeah, very good. 
All right, so John Markley, let's go to you, and uh, you've assembled some uh, security trivia quiz questions here, and we're going to kind of, you know, struggle through trying to answer some of these. So uh, go ahead and shoot. What's the first one? Sure. All right, so we're so we're going to we're going to really get push it push you the limits on this first one. <laughs> so 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 <laughs> so the question is: Put the following worm slash virus events in order from oldest to newest. And so A is Melissa, I love you, SQL Slammer, and Sasser. B is I love you, Melissa, Sasser, and SQL Slammer. C is Sasser, Melissa, SQL Slammer, and I love you. And D is SQL Slammer, Sasser, I love you, and Melissa. And there's an extra credit question here that's not listed, which is which one of these are worms and which one of these are viruses? Okay. So I think I can help with the beginning here. But, you know, I think we really should give this question to Matt because oh, I think some of these date back to before Matt was born. <laughs> I don't think he's that is yet. not true. <laughs> Although some of these happened when I was in middle school. <laughs> when you were in middle I school. I remember those. <laughs> I think I have a better uh, memory then. Yeah, because I've forgotten half of this. I so. have a guess, but I'll so let go ahead and we, okay. give us your little twist on so, this first. And, and you know, I think it's probably worthwhile to describe a little bit. It, it, John had asked about which are viruses and which were worms. And that's the easier question. I actually know those. Yeah, I can so, I think so I So Melissa too. and I Love You were both email-based, so those were viruses. You had to open up an attachment in order for those to run. SQL Samur and Sasser were both worms. Right. They connected to the uh, MS SQL port and, uh, shoot, LSAS. I don't remember what port that was, right? But it was LSAS service? I think you're right. I think Absolutely. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's either like 135 yeah, or 137 one. or 445, yeah, but yeah. I think it's, yeah. All right, so now I have to see. <laughs> to, uh, this is the hard one. I'm, Order it. I'm oh, impressed man. already. All right. Uh, is can I can I get two of the answers taken away, or maybe phone a friend? <laughs> <So>, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I think I can help you take away a couple of them. Okay. Because you know, actually, right around the corner behind me here, there is a uh, there is a chart on the wall that was really the impetus behind what ult we ultimately we talk about in the Internet Weather Report. It was the original worm that really had an impact on the internet. So it was very notable. We have the graph of it basically on the, around the corner there. Uh, Anna Moroso had it framed and he had it in his office for a while. He's got it up on the wall over there. So uh, this was really the, uh, the sort of the starting point of the, you know, there was the Morris worm before that, but the, uh, it was the SQL slammer worm mm -hmm. that really slammed the internet. And uh, it was very efficient. It only took 505 bytes, and that was the entire code set of the worm. You toss it at the, um, the SQL server on port 1434 UDP, and it would basically infect the device and send it out, spraying packets out to the internet, and infected a huge number of devices. So that was, a, uh, that was one that was clearly, in my mind, before Sasser, which one was the LSAS service, it came later. It was still big, but nothing in terms of in terms of network traffic, okay. comparatively speaking. So I think that helps you eliminate that, two of them. That does, and I'm I'm going to go with letter A. Melissa, I love you. SQL Slammer, Sasser. Okay. So what do you I think, do? John? <laughs> well, I'll give you the answer. The answer is A. So Melissa, Melissa, yay! Yeah, Melissa came out in uh, 1999. Nice. The I love you came out in uh, 2000, and then we have SQL Slammer, which was 2003, and Sasser in 2004, 4-ish. So, so I think those, I think Matt was alive during all these, but 
All right, good job. We, right. <laughs> well, but 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 I will I will tell you you missed one, and it's obvious you guys don't have these questions, and you missed you missed the series. Only one of those was a virus. All the rest of them were worms. Oh, really? So only Melissa was the virus. I mm. don't think that's true. <laughs> All right. So now, we'll agree to disagree. It, look it up. It's, 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 yeah, it, it's, the other ones did have worm behavior. So Melissa's the only one that didn't actually have the worm behavior. Yeah. It's was, interesting. Was I'm the, just saying, it's, it's, it's probably because... a semantic question about what's a worm and what's a virus too, right? Yeah, I think there's a subtlety there. I, I think it depi- depends on how you define it. That is, the um, SQL Slammer and the Sasser worms I, I tend to define them as worms because there was no yes. action required upon the users to make that. I love you, you didn't need to either, attack. right? Because all you had to do was send an email to someone, and in their preview pane, mm. as soon as they received it, it would actually execute? No? It's what I'm seeing here from Wikipedia, you know, the, the source of all sources, always correct. Um, <laughs> it's on the internet. So it, it must, it must be, be true. <laughs> so um, the, it, it was apparently an attachment. It was a VBS attachment. Yeah. So... Yes. I don't know that Outlook or whatever my client you happen to use would have opened a VBS by itself. Yeah. So for me, I'm going to say that's a virus. All right. Well, right. we're going to agree to disagree. Well, I'm going to challenge then, that I could make a worm in less than 500 bytes with, a port, than 500. with a port that's going to appear on the uh, top 10 chart today. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Are you scared All right. yet? All right. So, 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 so let's, let's, hit the, let's hit the easy question. Okay, and we've already kind of mentioned sideloading. So sideloading is A, the act of carrying a toddler on a hip. B, uh, which is in honor of our recent holiday, the amount of overage due to eating too much turkey during holidays. Uh, C, installing apps onto a mobile device without using an official app store. And D, taking uh, a shipment to a side entrance. John knows this one. Well, I actually already answered exactly. this question. But we're, you might, okay, I'll take this one. <laughs> uh, we already discussed it. This was supposed um, to be mine, but you blew it for me, John. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, well, I don't really have anything witty like Matt had to say to kind of dance around answers, uh, like taking a shipment to a side entrance. But uh, it, the actual answer is what we just discussed in the last article, installing apps onto a mobile device without using official app store. See? All right. Um, there we go. Okay. So... Um, that was kind of a gimme. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take the, uh, the lead on okay, this you're one. Gonna take the hard John one. stole mine here. John Hogeboom stole mine. All right. Mine. So let me, let me give you the hard one. So, and I don't know if it's harder than the first one, but it's a little harder than the second one, obviously. Uh, Bluetooth data is transmitted through what means? Either A, magnetic, B, optical, C, radio frequency, uh, D, capacitive uh, coupling, E, laser, or F, induction. Okay. So... Um, I think I'm going to start by rolling out magnetic because one of the problems with, you know, anytime you have an electric field, you also have a magnetic field. They're, you know, the, uh, does everybody know this rule? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the, uh, but the, the problem is magnetism doesn't really propagate very far. Although Bluetooth is near, near field, but 30, 40 near. feet. Yeah, it's not that near. <laughs> so uh, optical is, uh, is a neat one. You know, there are some really cool optical communications things. In fact, I've seen some things where they, they are um, uh, using them as potential alternatives to Wi-Fi, where you have a lot of potential for interference, mm-hmm. but it requires that you have, you know, basically transponders all over the ceilings in the rooms where you want to be able to use this type of thing, and it needs to be modulated. So I haven't seen too many Bluetooth devices with light coming out of it, or even infrared, you know, it, like an infrared remote. Is for, Brian. 
Did you know that? Uh, I'm sorry. They when do you turn on Bluetooth, the little blue LED comes Oh, the little blue, uh, blue that's LED. What that's what it's for. Uh, <laughs> no. See, I always thought that was a battery indicator. So um, I'm going to skip C for the moment because, well, we'll come back to it. That's just implausible. Capacitive coupling. That's a pretty cool idea, but... I don't even know what, what is capacitive coupling. Well, there are actually some touch screens that use capacitive coupling that basically what they're doing is they're uh, picking up uh, on okay. the, uh, the, the, but that's a really, really near field detection. It is basically, if you take a, uh, a conductor and we're, you know, right, sort humans. of weak conductors and you put an insulator and then have it, another conductor behind that, you can build so you up a charge. you Morris code. That would be your method to. Yeah, in effect, yeah. Bluetooth. <laughs> or if you're transmitting to Communicate. your phone. <laughs> so, and then laser, that's really a form of optical, but it's very directional. So you'd have to be pointing directly at the thing. That would be very, uh, very uh, convenient. Induction, well, that's, uh, that's basically a type of magnetic yeah. field um, sharing. So I think we're going to have to go with radio frequency because most things are radio. In fact, I happen to know that Bluetooth uses uh, 2.4 gigahertz as its uh, frequency band. And uh, which is a really cool frequency band, except that everybody's using it for everything. It's actually a it's a it's actually a little piece of spectrum that's considered unregulated. Um, I think it had something to do with microwave ovens tended to use that frequency. I, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I think that may have been the. F so they were concerned about frequency interference, and so they say, well, you know, just leave it out for people to use whatever way. And then they started coming out with all these cool devices like cordless phones, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi. And uh, then everything started interfering with each other, not the microwaves. Yeah, especially and when so you're now to they're talk creating, on the phone and you know, heat yeah. up your chicken in the microwave. Yeah, now they're, cre <laughs> <laughs> they're creating other, um, other bands to moving things up to 5 gigahertz for a lot of those things. So anyway, final answer, C. <laughs> and, 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 and next time I'm going to have to have PhD level questions because you guys nailed it. So that's, that's C radio frequency is correct. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, all right, so let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And, uh, you know, we had covered this last week. I just wanted to give a little bit of an update. Scan probes on port 11101 UDP. And, uh, John, you had looked at this. This is the, uh, this was related some, to some BitTorrent activity yeah. and had a really strange demographic. Yeah, I still don't have an answer it. for, like, why the sudden rise. Yeah, well, we've seen some, uh, we've seen this uh, a a few occur occasionally. Yeah. I, I have this funny feeling that there's, there are some controls that are being put into place to try to inhibit this stuff, and they kind of migrate to a different port and some things like that. I'm, that's, just a, uh, that's just a little bit conjecture on my part. In any case, uh, it says sources in the U.S. You know, I took a look at it. It, it, it is P2P activity. It's file sharing activity. Uh, it looks like it might be some pirated material, that type of thing, I think. In, uh, Which in is basically all of BitTorrent. Yeah, it's pirated material. <laughs> Mostly. And the geographic map here just shows a lot of uh, sources in the United States, Brazil, Europe. And, uh, you know, when we had analyzed it last week, I, haven't, I didn't do an update on that aspect of it. This is actually last week's map, but I did an eyeball. It looks like it's very consistent still. The other end of the communications were generally in China. So that was a little bit weird. Anyway, I would recommend that if you see this type of activity on your network to investigate it a little more, a little more thoroughly. And, you know, if you have any insights into what's going on there, feel free to contact us. We certainly would uh, uh, be interested in your input. And of course, you know, we're not going to mention where you found it, so uh, we'll just uh, take that as an anonymous tip if you like. Uh, and the top 10 most probed ports, really no surprises here. There's just a little bit of movement, but actually very little. Top of the list, port 23 TCP, 
we'll take a little closer look at that. 53.413 UDP, we'll take a closer look at that. I didn't actually show or create a, an additional graphic on port 1900 UDP. You know, this is traditionally the SSDP activity, Simple Service Discovery Protocol, and uh, it's generally associated with reflective denial service attack activity when you see it on the internet. So uh, there were a couple of spikes here. It was very spiky activity and uh, clearly associated with uh, attack activity, denial service attack activity, but I'm not uh, certain exactly um, the, uh, the circumstances around that, so I chose not to uh, go into a lot of detail here. Uh, followed by port 80 TCP, scanning for those web applications, port 22 TCP, probably not looking for these, uh, you can't scan looking for clients. For you can't scan for clients this way. No, you, you can no, only scan really for servers, right? <laughs> and uh, port 53 UDP, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, there's been a sort of a rise in reflective denial of service attack activity using uh, uh, DNS. And of course, you know, there's oftentimes scanning for uh, DNS servers anyway. Port 443 TCP, again, the web servers, uh, possibly looking for uh, vulnerable web servers. 445 TCP, we've got uh, the configure. And then followed by 1911 TCP. You know, this is actually researchers generally that we've seen. Uh, I've seen some other things a little bit sprinkled in here, but predominantly researcher activity. And uh, this is associated with that uh, industrial uh, internet application. Uh, Matt, I think you had done a little oh, bit of investigation. Niagara, on this one. that one? Uh, yeah, I think it's this. Tritium Fox, Tritium yeah, Fox. by Niagara. Right. It's uh, right. interesting. There's a lot of, a lot of them out there. A lot of them out there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, if you have any industrial applications, it's like building automation. Things, yeah, it's a, it's an important, uh, it's important to make sure that those things are tied down pretty tight. Again, the, it is researchers, but the, uh, the, subsequently, once the researchers gather that data, they actually make it relatively public, and so it's, uh, or, or in some cases, very public. So it's important that you lock down those systems. It does make that information available to attackers. Uh, looking at port 23, uh, in terms of scan probes, and over the last 90 days, you know, we saw a surge of activity right at the beginning of January uh, that had tapered off as, uh, as time has gone up, and then there's been a uh, surge in that activity. There was also a little bit of a surge in activity in terms of the sources doing that scanning on port 23. Not a significant one, so, uh, but it does sort of attribute or, or tie back to the um, that surge in terms of the number of probes. Looking at the most sources doing that probing, uh, port 23 clearly at the top of the list, but it's not you know, a huge proportion of that pie chart in comparison to what we've seen in the past. We've seen it be more than 50% in the not too distant past. So uh, we'll take a little closer look at that. 53.413 UDP, we'll take a closer look at that. And the others on here, I guess we'll take a little closer look at 33.89 as we go along here as well. Scan sources on port 23 TCP. John, you generated this graph. This is actually the last year yeah. of activity, so uh, 365 days. And uh, you can see, you know, we're not near where the peak was uh, from a, a year ago, but we're still at some pretty substantial numbers here, up in the tens of thousands, actually around 70 to 80,000 sources that are doing scanning activity on port 23 at any given time, doing password guessing or default passwords against these. Uh, uh, exposed devices. Possibly for next week, we'll bring in, there was an article I saw related to uh, protecting home routers and uh, there was an assessment done in terms of the security of home routers. And so while well, that would be uh, perhaps a good thing to discuss here because that's often the target of a lot of these attacks. 
Scan sources on port 53413 UDP. This is that Netis router backdoor. Again, home router that we were talking about. The one that I said you could probably write a worm in less than 500 bytes for. Oh, there you go. You might be able to. That's absolutely true. Good point. Uh, very good point because it's, uh, it's actually got a scripting language built into the device for you. So yeah. it, it, it helps you out. That The uh, SQL Slammer worm. I'm actually second guessing here. It might not have been 505 bytes. It might have been 404, but uh, it, it, it was one, it was a number tight. like that. But yeah. it was it was actually done in assembler. It, it was pretty. Right. It, was, it was actually going right into. Yeah, the you could you could have a situation. payload that's yeah. less than 500 bytes for this, but you'd yeah. probably need more than that to go retrieve a secondary. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a possibility. Anyway, yeah. so. Well, I digress. You're basically, you're basically <laughs> running a wget command and run. Anyway, the um, this is looking at the last 90 days of activity. You can see clearly that there was a, you know, just really started activity near the end of uh, November 2015. Uh, we and then we've seen some very persistent activity since then. So whatever they were looking for, they started to find it. And in fact, there are quite a number of devices out there that are participating in this activity. Uh, this is look actually looking at the number of sources, and so we're up in the tens actually. Around uh, around thirty to thirty-five thousand sources that are doing the scanning activity as we peak, as we look at it now, but it peaked back at the end of November around uh, sixty thousand sources. Now, looking at scan sources on port thirty-three eighty-nine, this is remote desktop protocol, often you know used for remote access to uh, Windows devices, can be used for Linux devices as well, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes associated with password guessing. What we're seeing here is that there's been a pretty steady. Uh, level of activity in terms of the number of sources scanning here, but we saw a, basically a surge over the last couple of days. A little bit short of 50% increase in the uh, number of sources there. So it went from about 2,000 sources up to about close to 3,000 uh, sources on average. Perhaps a little bit less than that, but nevertheless, a little bit concerning. Somebody else has joined the party, so to speak, mm -hmm. in terms of trying to identify these devices and uh, one that you'll want to be uh, making sure you pay attention to anyway. Of course, you know, 2,000 sources doing scanning all the time is something to pay attention to as well. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel, on YouTube, as well as iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. So I'd like to thank you, John Markley, online. I keep looking over here because we have a monitor for John, but you're in the camera over there. The, uh, the <laughs> thank you for joining us, uh, John Markley, and I appreciate the quiz questions and look forward to doing that again sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you, John. Yep. Hogaboom. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. Uh, oh, We're all John. <laughs> Everybody's a John today, uh, and I'm a Joe. So, <laughs> no, thank you, Matt, for, uh, for joining us today. I'm Brian Rexford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe, and I'll try to keep my name straight. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.